All right, we're on. This is uh, Jem Cohen and Mike Plant sitting in Brooklyn, early June 2014, waiting for the bulldozers to wake up in the backyard <laughs> and destroy my light, building that luxury condo. Welcome to Cinemat. <laughs> this is Mike Plant. I'm sitting with Jem Cohen in Brooklyn, New York, in... Um, and his very charming apartment that's about to have less light. Um, Jim's a longtime filmmaker, um, I would say political activist, and I would also say professional observer of life on Earth, to not try to sound too pretentious, but um, is something like that fair? Sure. <laughs> I'm all right with that. Because I don't think you came into all of this thinking, I want to be, I'm going to be a filmmaker as a profession. Well, I didn't have anything else in mind, but I didn't. I didn't have a career um, on my personal radar as a kind of thing to think about. I just did what I did and do what I do. Mm -hmm. I think I come from a time where it was actually possible for people to be very active and very busy and really excited about their work, but not to be thinking in terms of career that mm -hmm. sounds kind of strange to say but that's the way that most of my musician friends came up you know they just mm -hmm. they were started bands started labels and worked all the time but I don't remember any of them mm -hmm. using that word or kind of right different way of thinking about things or not thinking about some things mm -hmm. but did you always in did you always sort of consider the audience when you were filming stuff that's sort of the thing that's um, I think like the difference between somebody that's like uh, there's a type of filmmaker it's like oh, I'm gonna make a film and audiences are gonna love it but I feel like you're in that very nice position of I see something beautiful I want to film it and I want to share it well, or I see something ugly or terrifying or... Um, you know, I think that for me, I could boil it down. When that question comes up, I could boil it down to... You do make films for other people. You want other people to see the films. You do have an audience in mind. But you make them for other people. You don't make them to please other people. And that's a critical distinction. So I make films to try to get it right for me. And it's very important to bring that out into the world. And I love to expand the audience and to get it to places where it isn't necessarily comfortable or expected or part of what's usually on people's plate but I don't I don't try to expand the audience by making work that is pleasing to an audience mm -hmm. that's just a different thing do you feel that, that uh, people have found the more political stuff do they connect with that a little bit better 
or is it not necessarily so? Because you'll do, when you have a political film, at least in my opinion, you'll have, it, it'll be a poetic statement. It's still an obvious statement, but, you know, it's not PBS. It's not, which is not a bad thing, it's just something else. Well, I, 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 I never know. I never thought of myself as setting out to make political films. If you look at the world and you try to do it carefully and clearly, then I think you run into political matters. And if you if you insist on making films the way that you really want to make them, then that also becomes that has political implications because there's generally um, a counter force to that proposition where there's a lot of pressure to make films for other reasons and for other people and just trying to really keep it genuinely independent is in itself a political proposition whether or not the film is identifiably political. So I don't, you know, if someone said... To a lot of people, I don't make political films at all because they're not, they're almost never um, made with a sort of political agenda. They're not tools for some um, movement or proposition. They're observations, which to me should have political implications, but compared to kind of social issue documentary as a kind of identifiable genre that's very far from what I generally do so I'm pleased to be considered a political filmmaker but once again that was never my intention per se as a as something that would be labeled as such. Mm -hmm. This is not to say that um, you have no sense of humor. <laughs> you have shown me shorts and say like, dude, this is a comedy. Well, I don't, I don't think we survive in this world without a sense of humor. And I don't <laughs> think that we can be um, all that interesting without a sense of humor. It just it, it it a sense of humor is integral to what humans are, and if you're observing the world um, accurately, then you observe that it's full of humor, even if some of that humor is um, quiet or some of that humor is, you know, on one level, um, you know, sometimes it can be a little savage, sometimes it can be very sweet, but. The world is as full of humor as it is full of, uh, you know, wind or or garbage trucks. So you've got to include it, you know. And uh, I, I've always, you know, there's always been territory where people make the assumption that that things are terribly serious or self-righteous or pretentious, and they're actually not. I mean, that was the case with Fugazi, and one of the reasons I made Instrument is because. I got so tired of people, you know, making um, these assumptions that the band was humorless because they often sang about serious things and they had 
serious intentions and so on. Um, whereas if you knew the band, you know, they were some of the funniest, they are some of the funniest people I've ever met. And, um, and so in, a, in observing them over the course of 10 years to make that film, that was actually one of the primary um, issues for me was just to be fair to them by letting the humor come through, which I think it does. So by the same token, you know, some people, they assume that anybody who kind of prioritizes uh, mm -hmm. art matters over over um, popularity, that they must somehow be, you know, humorless, pretentious, or whatever. And you know, that's 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 kind of nonsense. Mm -hmm. If you use black and white people, yeah, exactly. You know, like as if uh, as, as if the Marx Brothers didn't exist. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. So yeah, humor is really important to the work, but it's important in the way that it's important. I I think mm -hmm. like I love Chekhov, and Chekhov is a humorist. Do you think could the latest film, Museum Hours? It was interesting because it got. I mean, I wasn't surprised that it got critical acclaim, but it was nice that I got so many critics on board. Do you think they all sort of, was it come across the right way, the people? Because some people wanted to, I think anytime, like a little bit of what you're saying, when something, when somebody wants to write about a film and they want people to take it seriously, sometimes they write about it too seriously. When, I think Museum Hours is just a film about people and it's not there to bum you out or be overtly so artistic that I think it has a lot of accessibility. Well, I didn't do anything different in making Museum Hours than what I've done for the past, whatever, going on three decades. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I, I, I roam around, I like to look at the world, I try to do that carefully, you know, mm -hmm. I, I'm amused and saddened and fascinated by stuff that I see when I look out of the window, and, you know, so I try to make a movie about that. This movie has people in it, and they're more that their 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 dialogue, their interaction is more of a focus than in a lot of other things that I've done, which are sometimes just you know city portraits or or music documents or or kind of odd, hard to identify um, pieces of the journey. But th there is an element of kind of human concern that takes a certain. Um, uh, that that's elevated more than it usually is. So that was a surprise to some people, but but uh, you know, really, I mean, when you think about it, you know, Benjamin Smoke is about a person mm -hmm. and, and and an environment and the music that that person comes up with, and you know, instrument is about a group of people kind of moving through the landscape of making music over a long period of time, and and so you know. Museum Hours, on a certain level, surprised people, but it it didn't surprise me, and and I didn't feel like I was doing anything to make it more popular or or, or have more mass appeal or or to be something that critics would like. So to some degree, it's been a pleasant surprise because the fact that that it got good 
critical response means that it gets out farther and that's mm. delightful to me but it's a mistake if people think that I shifted gears in some big way in order to make that happen because I really mm -hmm. didn't and mm -hmm. given that that um, you know to some degree as much as anything else it's about a 16th century painter Peter Bruegel the Elder who a lot of people have never heard of mm -hmm. um, it's actually substantially bizarre that it would sail out as far as it did um, but it also I think that a nice thing that happened is people I think were ready for it in part because they're hungry for something that runs counter to the bigger mainstream currents and they're also hungry for something that is actually contemplative mm. and quiet and observational and you were always being told that that is exactly not the case and that everything is kind of running in the other direction. Mm -hmm. But as much as, as, as the mainstream swings towards increased acceleration and, you know, and, and as it swings towards kind of louder, bigger CGI, 3d, 4d, 5d, mm -hmm. um, blockbuster you know and kind of dumbed down material then then it just makes sense that you would get um, actually larger number numbers of people who who don't want that mm -hmm. and I think it's always been there though too because it's not like blockbusters are only 10 years old how many times, especially in our lifetimes, do we have to hear about the death of the movie theater? And it's like, you know what? You just played, because I just counted, you just played over 125 theaters. Right. Which is absurd. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's great. A, as I said, it's, it's, it's a pleasant surprise, bordering on a bit of a shock. It's also <laughs> a testament to the good work that Cinema Guild did by having the mm -hmm. kind of being fearless about it from the get-go and, and feeling like, there was something there that they could swing pretty far and wide, which mm -hmm. many would have said was simply not something that any distributor would recognize or feel. But there were, you know, mm -hmm. but but you're absolutely right. You know, I I I um, have never felt that the movies were dying or that the cinema experience was was dying but i do know that if we if we accept that then it might happen mm -hmm. and yet there have always been things that kind of pop up out of the blue and surprise everybody and nobody knows really what is going to make something roll and and it's kind of unfortunate that people accept that there's a sort of mm -hmm. industry consensus that is accurate and that therefore we should all throw up our hands and, and give up because we're constantly being told that there's no place for smaller movies or there's no place for quieter movies or there's no place for um, odd 
movies. And if there's one mm -hmm. thing that Museum Hours is, is it is an odd movie. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the thing is that even the people who liked it a lot, I think to some degree, um, kind of somehow managed to bypass that it's, it's a very strange <laughs> entity. Mm -hmm. Particularly in the sense that it posits a, a kind of simple, friendly narrative but that really has very little to do with with what goes on for you know an hour and 47 minutes mm -hmm. and it's, it's a little bit of a rom romance <laughs> well it has an element of that but but yeah. but the truth is i was curious to make a movie in which everything was kind of of equal importance the city mm -hmm the 16th century painter, the life of a museum guard, the interaction with a visitor, mm -hmm. the flea mar the stuff in a flea market, all of that is really, I think, genuinely granted equal footing. And that's the kind of... Uh, balance that I've been interested in from my very first film but it's really not what normal movies do and so you, you can you can like it or not like it but I think it's fair to at least give it the due that it it functions a bit differently from the norm and I'm very pleased that people can accept that and not find it intimidating or alienating because as much as I wanted to make a movie that functions differently than the norm I also had no intention or interest in making you know a pretentious film mm -hmm. and it's not the film is not it may play by odd internal rules but it doesn't feel like you know mm -hmm. a European art film or in, in quotes or whatever there's something very down to earth about it that is integral to the whole film mm -hmm. but I've always believed that there's something very down to earth about like the act of looking at the world and having that be central to one's filmmaking mm -hmm. that's that's very different from the entire intention and structure of the way that Hollywood works, for example, mm. and the way that most, you know, quote unquote, indie films work. But that doesn't make it an alienating or pretentious thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think even for that escapist audience, like people that want to get away from something through and movies are just supposed to be entertainment. It's like, well, if you can't handle a movie with a little bit of difficulty, it's like, how are you going to go outside your door <laughs> to the corner? You know, the what works in this film and in a lot of art cinema is that it's like, oh, okay, this is something I recognize and it's something that makes me feel a certain way, you know? Well, it has to be recognizable to people's lives. It has to be, mm -hmm. it has to be entirely kind of wrapped up 
in how people actually feel and how they interact. I mean, in order for the movie to work, it, it has to be believable and it has to be something that people can connect to. Mm-hmm. That seems obvious. I mean, that seems like, well, of course, and like I, it seems like I'm not saying anything when I say that. But, but if you stop and think about it, that's not the way that most movies function at all. They function by often presenting something that has nothing to do with the way that we feel, the way that we interact, or the things that we see on a daily basis. So it's just a different approach from the get-go. And it's very strange to me that what people assume to be kind of normal in cinema is often that which is most removed from their own lives. And when people encounter something that actually works kind of like our lives work or our memories work or or our thought process or our process of vision, they often relegate that to some margin of the bizarre or experimental or avant-garde. And I think a lot of times when I see quote-unquote experimental films what occurs to me is that if you actually break it down a lot of them function a lot more like our minds actually function we are we 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 remember things and there's a kind of non-linear aspect where there's a beautiful weird jumble of of actuality and 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 the, the imaginary and all of that tends to be much more non-linear than it does, you know, it doesn't go by some kind of predictable pattern. We don't, mm-hmm. we, we don't live in, in, in three acts with, with certain predictable um, arcs or, or uh, outcomes. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that I find every experimental film um, Interesting, or that I'm not alienated by them. I mean, sometimes I am, yeah. but I think that you know, when when Stan Brackage is like looking at the ashtray and his what he's, you know, it, it's not necessarily my kind of cinema, and I don't I don't think that it's it's better than mm-hmm. um, a Buster Keaton movie. I, in fact, I would probably veer a little more towards wanting to watch a Buster Keaton movie than than a Brackage but mm-hmm. but Brackage is is investigating eyesight how we actually look at something and how light works in the world in a very down to earth way mm-hmm. that has more to do with life than uh, the, the next Transformers movie by mm-hmm. by far so I just think that you know there's room for all of this stuff if we at least make room for all of this stuff mm-hmm. and cinema has always covered a pretty wide gamut if we really look at it fairly and accept the history that's often mm-hmm. buried or pushed to the side and when audiences are smart they they can be. I mean, they they mm-hmm. they they're they're much more open than we assume that they are. Mm-hmm. 
definitely. And I've always, I mean, one of the things about working the way that I've had to work over the years is I end up in a lot of very odd screening situations. I mean, I used to go on these weird little tours like the Southern Circuit Tour, which mm -hmm. I did twice, where I'd end up, you know, showing films in Florida in a kind of like weird Quonset hut. And I look out and I realize like, okay, it's mostly senior citizens tonight. And they're not, they've never heard of you. They've mm -hmm. never seen a quote unquote experimental film, but they, they'll come out because this is like something that the local museum cultural enterprise is, mm -hmm. is offering them. And all you have to do is open the door a little bit and, and kind of, sometimes mm -hmm. you just help a tiny bit by saying, don't expect this to be a normal movie, but it, it really has to do with the world that we actually know. And that, that's an understandable concept. And then they're like, yeah. oh, okay. You know, and then they take the ride and they're fine. Mm -hmm. And so I do get tired of the, this kind of like endless hammering away in which people are insisting and assuming that people don't have any tolerance for mm -hmm. that kind of filmmaking. And, and I also feel that increasingly there's no doubt that, that people feel um, overwhelmed with distraction and acceleration and kind of bombardment and there's just something very human in wanting a respite from that so if you can actually kind of welcome them in enough to get them in entranced mm -hmm. they're much more willing to take an unusual ride than they're giving credit for mm -hmm. and in fact they often find it to be really a relief and a kind of blessing. Yeah, I always wish somebody would like sell an experimental show as a, a therapy session <laughs> in their marketing, you know. Well, in terms of it being um, an oasis from the kind of uh, inundation that people are generally feeling. that mm -hmm. Not just from entertainment, from everything. Yeah. I mean, people are feeling kind of atomized and, and, and distracted and sort of pummeled by choices and the possibility of, like, having a place where they can sit in the dark, not have all of these distractions thrown at them, and mm -hmm. having a, a kind of movie where their mind actually gets to wander, that, yeah. that can actually become very therapeutic and, and very appealing to people. They're just always, if, if the door is too hard to open up, because it's sold too hard, that's my problem. Right. Especially because you went on the Southern Circuit, it makes me think about how much you travel. Do you have a favorite part of America? Whether it's a city or a region? I don't really have a favorite part. I mean, I, I my favorite part of any place is is the part that doesn't feel like every other place. I mean, I, I made uh -huh. chain because I was increasingly kind of saddened and mortified by the proposition that every place needs to feel like every other place. And that tends to be driven by 
corporate takeover. And so that, that, you know, that's kind of a dominant mm -hmm. pressure in not just in America, but it, uh, absolutely every place in, in the globe. So I, you know, it, it, it it's the uh, feeling of mm -hmm. genuine regional character, whether it's in the, out in the desert or, or in my own adopted city of New York is a kind of wonderful and increasingly rare thing. But I don't, I don't really, I can't really think of like a favorite part of the country. If you told people like, oh man, people should, if you had the chance to tell people like, oh, people should really go check this place out, does anything come to mind? No, I mean, I, I don't think it gets any better than sitting on the New York subway and just looking at the, the people that get on, you know, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's eternally mm -hmm. surprising and fantastic and funny. And by the same token, it doesn't get any better than, you know, like being in the desert at dusk and seeing the power of that, like feeling the power of that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I'll take a swimming hole in rural Pennsylvania or I'll take a, a great view of the beautiful buildings in, you know, Chicago mm -hmm. or I'll take, a, you know, a punk show in a basement in Ohio they're all kind of equally interesting do you like um, do you connect with people on with doing Q&A's do you like doing that after films generally I really like it mm -hmm. you know I it can get a little wearying if you're if you find yourself doing it like night after night after night and mm -hmm. I don't like to hear myself say the same stuff but on on another level you kind of you have to because it, it, it is sometimes you know well it, it is what you believe or it is what you did and so you can't mm -hmm. make up a new scenario every time someone asks a question but I've generally found that you know it's very sustaining because people every once in a while kind of blow your mind with some unusual observation or that they kind of found an entirely different movie than the one that you thought that you made and and that that can that can be really fantastic it can also be kind of a bummer if they if they if found you know a movie if they found a movie that is one mm -hmm. that you know you really didn't want to make at all then that can be a drag but but i i love the interaction and the surprise of it and it's a it's a great feeling, mm -hmm. but it, you know, for me, I don't have that much of an attachment to like, you know, people are always saying like, a room full of people, you know, laughing at the same thing at the same moment, and that kind of warmth of, mm -hmm. of the, cinema experience. To be really honest, you know, when I see the films that I really love. Sometimes I feel like I'd, I'd be just as happy to be the only one in the room. I mean, I don't. It's not about the audience. Mm -hmm. It's about, it's about the movie. Um, but, but that said, I love walking into the room 
and feeling a certain kind of hush, you know, feeling a kind of, you feel like people are transported, but, but not transported in the way that, that I think of as escapist. They're sort of transported back to things that they are familiar with, but they're being reminded of mm-hmm. just how familiar they are with those things. It's a different kind of transport. So that's a great feeling. Yeah. And, uh, but you can even get energized if you're watching something and people walk out, especially at a particular part. I mean, that's like... Yeah, a, I'm, film, I mean, a film that has a reaction. I don't mean your films. Uh, the film that has... Oh, a, no, I mean, I lose people. I mean, I, sure. I, I, you know, I think every time I show Chain, there's usually a couple of people that go. And with museum hours, there's, there's often some people that go... Mm-hmm. Um, I've even shown I mean I've shown one of the longer Ken Jacobs films and it was interesting because people left and came back and it was an environment that was much more mainstream film festival than hardcore art film festival but they came back which I, what, what I thought was really interesting they took a break right. but they didn't leave and then a lot of these people came up to us afterwards because you do the intro so they can find you later and say you know what? I'm happy I experienced this, and right. and I like that bravery to say like, "Wow, you know what? I I just wanted to say I I found this really tough, but I'm happy you did it." Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's something really important that there that there be work out there that is kind of thorny. You know, I think that 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 thorn that gets under your skin and kind of like messes you up in some way can be really powerful. Even if it's way down the road, and and um, mm-hmm. I don't think that all work has to be easy or friendly. I mean, when I saw Chantal Ackerman's Jean Dielman, um, the whole theater walked out. Mm-hmm. I didn't even realize it till the movie, till the lights came up, and I looked around and <laughs> I felt bad for the projectionist, but. <laughs> that's an immensely powerful experience but uh, you yeah. know so it doesn't it's fine with me in a way that that there have to be some movies that are that tough mm-hmm. because that's where their power can come from it's kind of cliche but do you find a, uh, a better response in Europe than America or is it just no it worked the, it, it, it worked exactly the opposite for museum hours we, oh, we, really? we it was it was it had to be, you know, it was funded overseas. I couldn't, I couldn't raise money for it here. If I had tried, it's the, it's an essentially un, um, unpitchable movie, you know, by, by, by American standards right now, like trying to mm-hmm. boil it down in some way to a single sentence or whatever is, is, you know, is essentially impossible. And if part of that sentence is that, you know, you're real interested in a 16th century painter, you're immediately, you know. Um, and the river is also a character. Yeah, I mean, you know, it it, it is not the kind of thing that um, by any current standards people would support here. And yet it it went completely the other way. Um, It did okay in parts of Europe, but it did much better here. And people were much more accepting and interested. And it's, it's kind of confounding. I mean, I'm not... I don't I that's that amazes me but it makes me happy you know because again it's just I don't think that the that the um, 
accepted wisdom is really very wise mm -hmm. about what movies are going to fly and what movies mm -hmm. are not. I mean, Leviathan did surprisingly well, and that's a tough movie, you know. But again, I really think that people are hungry for seeing something that kind of pulls their head off in some way, even if it's perplexing or difficult or in some ways terrifying. Give them some credit, man. They're, why, why, would they, why do they want to just keep going back for the same? But do you, uh, going into Museum Hours, did you always know that was going to be a feature? Um, because you still do a lot of shorts, which is which is a good thing. But is it subject based, or is it kind of like you'll start something and you'll figure it out? Um, I just you know I shoot all the time, and I never I never think of shorts as such. You know, like I'm making a movie, and this is the movie, and it might end up being thirty seven minutes long, like Lost Book Found, or it might end up being ten minutes long, or it might end up being two and a half or 30 seconds. I mean, it just it just has to feel right for what you're doing. In the case of Museum Hours, I'd been thinking about certain things for 20, 25 years, and so there was kind of a lot that I wanted to get at, and it, it just made sense that that would need a longer movie to unfold those mm -hmm. various strands because it really is a kind of culmination of ideas and approaches that I'd really been been working with for a long long time mm -hmm. so I but I I think I'd been kind of sketching towards it I mean I didn't even remember it at the time but I'd made a super 8 film in the 90s called museum visiting the unknown man that I I'd ha I had mm. it's a it was a silent black and white super 8 thing that I played once with a live music thing at the Brooklyn Museum and other and then I I'd, I'd even I'd just forgotten about it myself but I looked at it when I was thinking about the extras for for the DVD Blu-ray release of Museum Hours and and I was like oh my god it's like totally a precursor wow. and so is Amber City which is 48 minutes long and has some of the same mix of city portrait and thinking about art and how art kind of helps us navigate so all of that stuff was kind of in the in the you know on the stove for a long time but i don't i've i i it's grotesque to me to think of short films as kind of like something that you do um trying to like make a calling card for a feature yeah I, I just that's to me that's disrespectful to the form it'd be like it, it, it as if every short story had to be a way to get a deal to make up a, a, a longer novel it just that's mm -hmm. that's ridiculous mm. do you so shooting since at least the early 80s do you have any idea how much unused footage you might have sitting around? Well, that's a that's a it kind of it's impossible to answer it, and and it would be I would start crying. 
<laughs> we don't want that to happen. <laughs> no, I mean, it's a real problem. I mean, I've yeah. got, I'm faced now with an archive that goes back uh, mm-hmm. more than 25 years, and there's a lot of stuff in it, and a lot of that stuff I'll never get to, and it's in decaying, endangered formats, and mm-hmm. there's no way that I, you know, can really uh, attend to that properly if I'm going to also attend to making new movies. So mm-hmm. the, the, I'm one of those people who has the curse and blessing of working from a kind of library of material that goes back a long time and to try to, to you know, that technology has made that immensely problematic because you work on formats that get superseded and there's a lot of planned obsolescence now in the tech and mm-hmm. there's no way that you can kind of keep migrating it from one thing to another so a lot of it is going to fall by the wayside and I, I that's a real heavy thing in my life it, mm-hmm. it has been for a while but it's it's reached kind of critical mass because now I am occasionally you know pulling something out and the tape won't play or the mm. or the film has vinegar syndrome or whatever I don't know you know what to say about that except that it's it's heavy but it comes mm-hmm. with the territory mm-hmm. and I'm just not one of those people who's going to be able to uh, put on the brakes and put all of my attention towards the like just the fundraising it would take to kind of safeguard the older material is, is just too it's too daunting Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't know, you know. It's I, there's, but there must be those happy moments, like you were just saying, like when you found, oh wow, I did this before. Oh yeah, no, yeah. I mean it's full of wonderful little surprises and rediscoveries, and I think that I will do a lot of work. I mean, I've been working for years and years and years on this Forty Second Street Times Square thing. That mm-hmm. the longer it gets, the more the footage looks like it's from another planet, and so it's it's you know there's something very special in mm-hmm. in having material that that goes back a long way um but on the other hand uh it's just logistically mm-hmm. harrowing to try to uh to save it all and i'm not going to be able to save it all do you have some faith in uh, newer technologies having doing the last film in film and on video yeah, I do. I mean, I I, I shot Museum Hours uh, in part with the Super 16 millimeter mm-hmm. uh, modified Bolex, and so almost all the the exteriors are are shot in film, and the interiors mm-hmm. are shot uh, digitally. And I I was really happy with the result. I mean, it, it mm-hmm. just I it made certain things viable, and and being a complete purist about it you know initially I wanted to shoot the whole thing in film and if I had I think that would have been a a mistake you know financially and and logistically just in terms of you know it's a it's done with a very small crew and there's no uh, there's there's really pretty much no um, no lighting that we brought in so I had to be able to work in very low light and there's depth of field and issues that you can get into if you're married to one format over another and and that kind of thing so did you find any sort of lens tricks that were well i used beautiful primes um Mm -hmm. and that was that's not a trick but it's a 
it's it's a gift, you know, to be able to use a real fast old prime that has a little something special in the in the glass. You know, some of that mm-hmm. some of what is special is actually that, you know, there are certain kinds of aberrations or or you know defects that, that are somehow friendly to the material. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also, you know, some she- some scenes were shot there's almost no permitted locations in the movie. So mm. we shot whole dialogue scenes where we just would like go into a cafe and and just start shooting and then get and get permissions uh-huh. later, you know? Um, and uh, that couldn't have been done with the bigger red cameras that we were using inside the museum. So we shot them with, with little tiny Sonys that were actually surprisingly... Mm great you know and and so i am a big believer in a kind of cinema possibility where you don't get you don't you don't uh you have to prioritize what makes the film possible and if that means that you have to be flexible about incorporating Mm -hmm. different formats and cameras then you do that but really you know with a very good color correction Mm-hmm. It's actually much more seamless than I would ever have guessed mm-hmm. when you watch the movie, and so I'm I'm happy with the way that all rolled out. Mm-hmm. Well, that's all tools. You just just don't accept how they hand it to you in the box. No, I mean you. I, I, I yeah, and I'm. You know, I I shoot. I love to shoot. I worked on this movie with a co DP. Peter Rosler because I wanted the option of being able to step away from the camera in order to like focus on the on the dialogue scenes in particular but then I found that it was great when we were sort of both shooting together most all of the time and then there were mm-hmm. whole you know weeks or months where I just wandered around on my own particularly you know shooting in in 16 millimeter and I didn't it, I'm very used to doing that it's that's mm-hmm that's part of my life and I'm comfortable with it and so yeah well in my head I, I, I when I was watching this for the first time I thought wow Jim had to talk to someone while filming them <laughs> I don't know if that is a first but no I mean it's 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 not a first but I, I do a lot of the films that I've done have depended on a certain kind of quiet and discretion on my part you know I'm often mm-hmm. like on a street corner and I'm just kind of hopefully disappearing to some degree mm-hmm. so it's different when you're when you're uh, doing a lot of dialogue and interacting and telling people hey could we point it a little more this way or you know mm-hmm. the movie is about half scripted so there are whole scenes that are kind of very carefully written and whole scenes that are wildly improvised and sometimes one actor is scripted and the other one is improvised so Mm. it's quite a mix but I also had wonderful people to work with and a lot of times I was able to trust their instincts and and I could still kind of disappear recede a bit and, and let things Mm-hmm. Unfold, and a lot of times P- 
people are interacting with the world, which is not controlled because there's nobody doing a locking it off, you know, mm -hmm. and there's no assistant director with a walkie-talkie saying, you know, yelling out action and cut in a way that that makes. Um, <laughs> what would you say? Well, I mean, sometimes you, sometimes you do say action and cut in the right, yeah, in the right, in the in a scene where that's necessary. But at other times, uh, sometimes you don't say anything. You just you just get the shot, and they just figure out or they're doing stuff, and you you just start filming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't have like you need one of those Max Senate cones. <laughs> <laughs> The, uh, now that you even think about it, though, you did do, you've done a lot of portraiture, like in Lost Book Found and Fugazi. You have people standing for the camera. Yeah, there, those were, there were plenty of times in my previous filmmaking history where I had kind of direct formal interactions where I'd say, you know, hey, I'm doing this, and would you stand over here and, you know, look right at the camera or whatever. Mm -hmm. So it's, this isn't, it's not completely... Uh, Anomalous. People have a different relationship towards that now, though, because, I mean, maybe not so much even in the 90s, but when we were growing up in the 70s and 80s, to have a camera filming you was an incredibly unique, special thing. And video has really made it, especially with phones, people don't have the same relationship anymore. No, but on, the, on another level, you know, on one hand, everybody's used to it, but now also people tend to kind of fall into certain kinds of performances, maybe... Mm -hmm. um, and you have to really work against that. So on one level, people are much more kind of comfortable with, with, with it, and it's less of a, of a, surprise, special event in their lives. Mm -hmm. But that comfort is not always uh, without its artificiality. You know? Is there anything you can say about uh, the anchor, the new project? Is that at a space you can talk about? Oh, well, I mean, I, w there's lots of relatively new projects. Mm -hmm. We Have an Anchor is the thing that I did after, right after Museum Hours, which was really uh, uh, projected films with live music, and it's kind of a documentary about Cape Breton, which is in Nova Scotia. And we did that uh, three times. We did it in upstate New York. It was commissioned from a place called MPAC and then we did it in Toronto and then we did it here in New York at, at BAM as part of the Next Wave Festival and that'll probably kind of maybe pop up here and there in different forms um, so that's one project uh, and then there's a there's a new new one called Gravity Hill Sound and Image which is a, another show of projected films mostly with live music although we start with a silent film and then we end with just music so it's a it's a kind of an evening in which people are kind of encouraged to think about how sound and picture go together and and you know explore that by looking at different ways in which it can happen so that's one of the new projects and I've been kind of I've, I, I shoot and and edit all the time just on my own and in my in my home. Um, Do you leave soundtracks off of that kind of work then? Because you figure it's going to be live? Uh, no, not necessarily. Because mm -hmm. I'm often actually uh, mixing in the soundtrack that exists on the film. Oh, okay. So I, I, when we do the show, 
I'm at the mixing board and I'm kind of pulling in the the uh, the real world ambient sound mm. uh, and then you know making it go away when I want the music to take over so that's a, a big part of it um, so there's all kinds of projects and you know the mm. usual logistical hurdles I mean I still I don't have any idea how to you know make this stuff quote unquote commercially viable so it's always a, mm-hmm. it's always a struggle it's not that hasn't gotten any easier it's probably gotten harder mm-hmm. is the Chris Marker stuff still just an idea or well I, I when or are they homages is that the right word or not well Chris Marker was immensely important and inspiring to me and I I was I was very happy to have had some interaction with him for years and I was pretty devastated when he died so I made a few projects that were kind of tips of the hat and I don't really know where they'll end up it could be that they mm-hmm. that it becomes a little kind of series it could be that they get joined together into a feature length thing I really don't know I mean you know that would certainly be a pretty non-commercial proposition <laughs> um, mm-hmm. but those are in the works. What kind of a film fan was he? Would you guys talk about films? Well, Marker was a lot more open-minded than I am really about cinema. I mean, mm. you know, he he really um, embraced the widest spectrum from, I mean, he's a, you know, his work has these very uh, clear and brilliant homages to Hitchcock, you know, Vertigo in particular, and in, in mm-hmm. Saint and and in um, La Jetée, and so he certainly loved some big Hollywood films. I mean, I, I absolutely love Vertigo as well, but but he embraced like American cable television series in a way that you know that I haven't really mm-hmm. mostly just because I haven't really had the time and I don't have a TV but mm-hmm. um, but I think that he was a little bit more more generous and, and more of a kind of cinephile and certainly a lot more knowledgeable than than I've ever been about about that so we talked about it a little bit but not that much I mean I think mm-hmm. that you know we were interested in history and and in kind of resistance as a phenomena mm-hmm. so i was happy to share with him my reports from you know occupy wall street and and i was just thrilled to see whatever he came out with and so you know i think he's just a, a it was it was very invigorating to have him in the world as an active participant where you just knew that he was holed up in his place <laughs> working away and trying to make something new and and now his presence is different because he ain't there doing that but now we're going to see a lot more of the work um, mm-hmm. and a lot of interesting things are going to come out of the archives and 
I just came from seeing a you know beautiful show at the White Chapel in London, you know, and presenting a lot of material that had not been accessible to the world before. Mm. Um, so all of that is important to me. Mm. Well, we can end with uh, the optimism that people can see Chris's films. Yeah, I mean, I think that that people felt a lot of frustration over the years that that he was kind of obscure and you know the truth is he put his emphasis on making the next thing rather than hustling the last thing mm -hmm. and he also um, made a very interesting and I think commendable kind of brave decision to step out of the limelight as much as possible so he you know famously didn't want his picture taken and didn't do you know Q&A's and stuff I mean I you know kind of I admire that <laughs> wish I'd had the guts you know uh, but on the other hand um, he was enormously active and the people who mm -hmm. sought out his stuff found it in bits and pieces and were really you know kind of little corners and 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 it's just it's incredible how mm -hmm. important his work was to so many people even though it was not commercial and it was not um, necessarily readily available or you know it wasn't uh, Well, it wasn't like you have to. It wasn't like you have to see this because a lot of people are seeing that. Exactly, exactly. It, it was quite the opposite, and yeah. and I think to some degree there's a great lesson in that. I mean, sometimes it's actually okay for something to be beautifully, powerfully, quietly small and yet enormous, and we can't. We have to recognize now how secretly powerful that was because he really, really mm -hmm. inspired a lot of people. And it's a reminder to uh, it's a reminder to recognize and celebrate the importance of the thing that isn't getting the million hits online and that isn't in the Sundance Festival and that isn't where the buzz is necessarily mm. we always need to be reminded to celebrate all that other stuff that exists mm -hmm. regardless you know Marker's not the only one who worked that way I mean sometimes people see him as a little too much of an anomaly was he, it really like no photos of him or he just didn't want to be a, a, his own publicist well, he he. There are there were a, f a handful of existing photos, and it's literally yeah. a handful. Oh wow! Um, and you know, I'd have to go for another ten or fifteen minutes of just to yeah. hypothesize <laughs> about why I think that he made that decision. Mm -hmm. But suffice to say, um, like you didn't go to his house and saw a family album. There's not even like photos of himself up in his own place. Uh, 
I, you know, his whole, his place was pretty crowded, and there was a lot of stuff, and there may have been an occasional picture of him, yeah. uh, but I didn't see it. I think that he just, he didn't want to be, uh, you know, everybody assumes now that every filmmaker is also going to have to be a publicist, and, yeah. and with that assumption comes uh, a, a ridiculous notion that that's kind of, a, a good thing, you know, a commendable thing, and and it's not. People don't just see it as as a necessity. They they see it as as like important and great to be like mm-hmm. prioritizing making yourself a, a a brand. Yeah. And to some filmmakers, that's always been, uh, you know, maybe secondary, but maybe much farther. Uh, you know, shoved aside much more than just secondary. Um, (laughs) And I think that it, that also offers to us a very interesting example that something can be very powerful and recognizable and historically important that Mm -hmm. was not built around self-promotion and, and, and branding and like being able to make, uh, you know, pitching your work by being able to boil it down. I mean, if, if, you know, think about Sunless, you know, or Sans Soleil. It's essential, it, it is perfectly the unpitchable film, completely undescribable, mm-hmm. really essentially a very different thing for almost everybody who sees it mm-hmm. and infinitely kind of complicated and mysterious and wonderful for all those reasons. And so when people are, are now kind of hammering at every filmmaker saying, you've got to be a better hustler and self-promoter, you know, they might want to think about whether whether that is really going to lead them to something more interesting than Chris Mar- what Chris Barker did. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, I think that that's really cool that we have these examples. But, but again, you know, just as people love... The, the, to sort of have it all be boiled downable, and they like to think now of Chris Marker as this you know reclusive mystery man, but mm-hmm. it's kind of nonsense. You know, he had a lot of friends. He did endless collaborations, mm-hmm. um, you know, with and without his name on them. And uh, there's also a history that he was absolutely part of a tradition that many other people are part of. And you have, you know, your Agnes Vardas and your Chantal Ackermans and and your your Jean Vigos and your mm-hmm. Guzmans and your uh, Alvarezes and your Humphrey Jennings and and there's this sort of wonderful lineage and so Marker would never have suggested that he was one of a kind and and yeah. you know the only pioneer and you know invented the essay film or whatever I mean you know he 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 was very upfront about. That, the, that there was a tradition. Sometimes it was a literary tradition and not just a cinematic one, but mm-hmm. he saw himself as part of a bigger picture. But sometimes that bigger picture is kind of suppressed and marginalized, and a lot of people in America particularly have never heard of Humphrey Jennings or whatever, which is you know mm-hmm. kind of a crying shame. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the, all of the endless emphasis on the Tarantinos and, the, and, and so on tends to... Um, you know, shove a lot of other things mm-hmm. way uh, to the side. So, right. 
you know, there's that. But but mm -hmm. yeah, we can we can try to be uh, celebratory as much as we can, um, you know, bemoan this kind of phenomena. And there's there's much to celebrate. People are always kind of a lot of there's always wonderful films being made. It, it I've never seen a period in which that just grinds to a halt, and I've never seen. You know, at a good festival, there's always something surprising and mm -hmm. mind-blowing. I've never seen that not happen. But sometimes those good festivals are not the ones that are on the front page of the magazines, you mm -hmm. know. So, on it goes. We have to end with something optimistic, though, Joe. <laughs> I, I, I am an, how could I be, you know still doing this if I wasn't on some level an optimist mm -hmm. I mean sure. I, I get the I get a big kick out of it I enjoy it I as you said you know I often actually even find it find the stuff funny yeah but but you know there's no point you can't just be uh, a rubber stamp optimist you have mm -hmm. to you have to kind of recognize that there are trenches in which certain wars have to be fought, mm -hmm. and um, and certain things also have to be kind of railed against, or at least mm -hmm. you you hope that some people will want to call a spade a spade. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't. There's no point in 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 despairing altogether. I mean, what a <laughs> what, a, what a drag that would be. <laughs> That's why we have to end with something happy. Yeah. Well, you know. I'm happy when I shooting. I'm very happy shooting and I'm very happy cutting and mm -hmm. you know I'm happy that I that somebody got my movie into a movie theater in you know Wilton, New Hampshire and mm -hmm. and, and people went to see it. And people went to see it. So there's a lot of uh there's a lot for me to be a lot of blessings to to count. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Mike.